Why America Must Lead Again, Rescuing U.S. Foreign Policy After Trump. That was the headline on a major article Joe Biden recently wrote in Foreign Affairs. But how exactly would Biden do that? And how would his approach to China, to Russia, to Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the world differ from the Trump administration? We'll put those questions to Jake Sullivan, one of Biden's top foreign policy advisors, and get his take on where the election now stands on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I'm um, looking forward to talking to Jake Sullivan. Uh, he's uh, one of those uh, foreign policy mandarins who have, has been around for a while. He was. Can a, you be uh, a foreign policy mandarin when you're only 43 years old? I was looking <laughs> him up on, on uh, Wikipedia. Yeah. And, you know, like... Uh, he has such an impressive resume. I mean, he's like a Supreme Court clerk. He's taught at Yale Law School. Right. Uh, he was uh, head of policy and planning at the State Department uh, for Hillary Clinton when mm -hmm. she was Secretary of State, which is a big job. And he was Joe Biden's top national security advisor when he was vice president, which is a job that was also held by a former skullduggery two-time guest, I think, Tony Blinken. Correct. So right. who is who is Joe Biden's, uh, I think, you know, kind of top foreign policy advisor in this presidential campaign. So that right, should so, set up. So yeah. let's, uh, maybe I should redo it and call Sullivan a would-be foreign policy Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the fact is, he is in Biden foreign policy circles, a heavyweight. And Absolutely. since you mentioned Blinken, I think it would be pretty interesting to watch how the two of them fare in a uh, where they end up in a Biden administration. Right. I mean, um, only one of them can be national security advisor and they're probably not at the level stature level for secretary of state. So uh, there could be quite a um, intense competition there. Yeah, I, you know, I guess that's right. I mean, Blinken has been deputy secretary of state. Right. Uh, so, so that's probably puts him, got the edge in that. So sense. he may he may yeah. have the edge there. He also was, you know, I think he goes further back with Biden. So, you know, they have a very close relationship. Maybe he becomes Secretary of State um, in a second Biden term, although I think most people think that there may not be a second Biden term <laughs> if there is indeed a We're first Biden term. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. But, I mean, suffice it to say, well, we could have like a, uh, you know, the battle between the two foreign policy heavyweights on Skullduggery. Skullduggery face-off. Just um, have them come on. And yes. you know, see who fares right. better. Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. Don't think that'll happen. But um, look, the point is, they, they, these guys. We've 
you know, Jake Sullivan is uh, is a you know really impressive, very smooth, very smart policy guy. And even if neither of them were to become national security advisor and were to take other jobs, I think talking to Jake is going to tell you something about the kind of people that uh, Joe Biden has around him. And they are very much in the mainstream of the Democratic Party when it comes to foreign policy. So I think that'll be really interesting. Um, to, and to, and to I see. should point out, there are a lot of questions. You read through what Biden, that Biden article, which I did in uh, preparing for this interview, and there are a lot of questions left unanswered about exactly how Biden would thread the needle between trying to restore human rights and advancement of, of, of democracy to a more central place in a U.S. foreign policy but at the same time, dealing with all the thorny issues of, you know, China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the fact that we do have to deal with these countries in one form yeah. or another on the world stage. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how yeah. Sullivan responds to yeah. questions about that. I, um, I think one of the things that's interesting about Biden and foreign policy is, whereas in other policy areas, economic policy, issues like climate change. Biden has been pushed by the progressives in the Democratic Party to the left. I do not see that happening on foreign policy. I do not see him taking really fundamentally changing positions on, say, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, he's going to be you know, a supporter of a two-state solution. He is going to want to maintain a strong relationship with Israel. You know, I think that's going to be mostly true across the board. One topic that I know you'll want to get into is Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, and so see how he balances, you know, uh, kind of the idealistic impulses in foreign policy, issues like human rights and realpolitik, uh, hard-nosed uh, national security concerns, arms sales, all of those kinds of issues. So we'll get into that with Jake and uh, um, should be revealing. So uh, two other matters I uh, want to raise before we get to the interview. First, uh, we've got a major event, skullduggery event, coming up on Thursday with Bob Woodward, who's uh, made a bit of a splash of late. Woodward, of course, uh, was my old boss at the Washington Post. He hired me when he was the metro editor of the Washington Post a long, long time ago. So it will be fun to engage with him about his new blockbuster book, Rage. Well, I just realized this is going to be great. It's going to be uh, uh, two <laughs> Isakoff bosses on one Skullduggery <laughs> episode. So yeah. Bob and I are going to have to ex uh, uh, share exchange stories here about what it's like to be Mike Isikoff's boss. I can't wait. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's where Woodward's head is at at the moment. It's probably more an issue for you right now than it is for him. But it Well, maybe I can get some tips from him. Yeah. Uh, we, you got to close the loop on that, Mike. So we're doing, on Woodward, we're doing a, a live skullduggery video precise time i think is still a little uncertain but i think it's gonna be thursday this thursday afternoon and so look for it on twitter we will blast it out on social media and it'll be live uh, but, streamed on uh, yahoo news correct and uh, yeah and i think we'll go beyond the book it'll be uh you know we'll talk about the state of investigative reporting today we'll talk about woodward's long career in journalism so i think it's gonna be a great listen and uh, and watch uh, so tune in 
And uh, one other breaking news uh, of interest to Skullduggery listeners, for those of you who have listened to the new Conspiracyland series we popped last week, one of the characters you might remember who appears briefly in episode one and more extensively in episode three is Jack Berkman, longtime Republican lobbyist, arch conspiracy theorist who uh, has... um, gone off in all sorts of wild directions of late, Um, the Washington Post moved a story just a little while ago that, quoting Berkman as saying, his home was raided by the FBI and that they seized documents and his computer and other material. And no sooner did the Washington Post pop that than the Daily Beast reported that it was all surprise, surprise, a hoax by Berkman that, in fact, uh, they found Craigslist advertisements seeking people to play FBI agents who they could then video raiding Berkman's house in order to put out this story about um, the FBI raiding Berkman. Now, we have not had a chance to do our own independent reporting on what happened uh, at Berkman's home and whether the FBI was there or not. But if you go back and listen, or if you haven't yet, please do listen to Conspiracy Land. Um, you'll get a sense of how trustworthy Berkman is when he relates um, events such as this. Well, it's, I guess it's right out of the Berkman playbook. Yeah. Isn't, he the, isn't he the guy who uh, hired uh, actors to do a reenactment of the Seth Rich yes. murder? Uh, that, was with, a, that was an entire episode in last year's <laughs> Conspiracy Land. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how the Washington Post uh, fell for this. But in any event, you know, Berkman is a, is a, a small part of the um, latest conspira- uh, Conspiracy Land series. But he is also, you know, just kind of you know, emblematic of, of the kinds of characters out there who traffic in these conspiracy theories. He's kind of unusual, and he's sort of this affable, friendly, unflappable character. He doesn't have the kind of dark, you no, know... No, very friendly. I, I just yeah. called him a couple minutes ago, and, you know, he couldn't have been friendlier. Hey, yeah. Mike, how you doing? Um, listen, I'm a little tied up. I will call you back, I promise. Um, yeah. So he said. But yeah. it just speaks to the... You know, idea which is which you get into in in all of your conspiracy land theories is that just just seems to be sort of no consequences for people who who do this. They are not held accountable except for by journalists like yourself. And yet, the people who uh, get caught up in their conspiracy theories can be very very badly harmed. And um, it, it's just really important to to keep reporting on these people and the terrible conspiracy theories that that they are spinning out there. And so I really urge everyone to listen to this latest Conspiracy Land series. Right. And just one more beat on that. If you listen to that episode three, where you hear Berkman saying these completely outrageous things, what does he say to back himself up and justify it? He said, well, Donald Trump has said much the same thing. He cites Trump as source material corroborating his crazy conspiracy theories. And I think that's probably the most important point or takeaway point from uh, the reporting we've done on this. 
And they are all they are all scratching each other's backs because then Donald Trump goes off and says, you know, the QAnon people, I hear they're great Americans or something like that. So. All right. Well, anyway, we've got a lot of um, meaty policy oriented questions to address with Jake Sullivan. So let's get right to it. We now have with us for his first appearance on Skullduggery, Jake Sullivan, Senior Policy Advisor to the Biden campaign. Jake, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Excellent. I want to start out with um, some foreign policy because you are primarily noted as a um, foreign policy hand, having been an advisor and top official in Hillary Clinton's State Department for many years, and now also advisor to the Biden campaign. Tomorrow, Tuesday, the White House will host a uh, signing ceremony for the Israeli-UAE peace agreement. Um, Is this a positive accomplishment of the Trump foreign policy, which the Biden campaign applauds? It is a positive accomplishment. The vice president has welcomed this step. It's been a long time coming, uh, guys. As you both know, it's been an open secret in the region that the Gulf countries and Israel have been getting closer and closer together. That dates back years. It dates back to, in fact, work that uh, the Obama-Biden administration did to nurture it along. And so it's a positive step that this has happened. It's good for the region. It's good for Israel. it's, It's good for peace. But of course, it's not what Donald Trump is going to say it is. It's not the deal of the century. You're going to see him tout this with a kind of classic Trumpian oversell. So, you know, bottom line, we should praise this deal for what it is, but not for more than what it is. One thing it did do is it staved off Netanyahu's asserting sovereignty over the West Bank, annexing the West Bank. And I just wonder, I mean, with this, if a, if a Biden administration had the same opportunity here, would it have done the same deal or would you have done something different? I mean, look, these two outcomes, the at least for now staving off of annexation is something deeply consistent with what Joe Biden's been saying for months. He was opposed to annexation and normalization of ties between two Arab states and Israel, something Joe Biden has been a supporter of for a very long time. So uh, it's a good outcome. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing about that element of it that's problematic. There are some kind of odd features of the UAE deal around the F-35s that, you know, raised eyebrows in Israel that we've had questions about. But really, I think the important point here is this is a good thing. Again, as I said before, it's been a long time coming. In a way, it's been kind of, it, this is not a bolt out of the blue it's not something where people said, oh, my God, I can't, I can't believe this is happening. You know, I remember back in the Obama administration working on getting the Clean Energy Agency established in Abu Dhabi and having Israel have a seat at that. But it, this is a good thing. It's a good thing. It should be applauded. Now, of course, it raises questions about whether this is more broadly moving to a larger peace deal in the Mideast. There's the thinking that it could not have happened without the uh, a green light from the Saudis, but the Saudis are not yet ready to do what the UAE is doing here. I want to ask you a little bit about Saudi Arabia, because we're coming up on the second anniversary of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, 
in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, an event that the CIA concluded was likely ordered by Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. So I want to ask you, how would a Biden administration deal with Saudi Arabia differently than the Trump administration is doing? Would it impose sanctions on MBS personally? Would it cut off dealing with business as usual with Saudi Arabia as long as Mohammed bin Salman is the de facto ruler of the country? Well, at a top level, the Biden administration would put values, human rights, and human dignity on the agenda in this relationship in a way that has been completely taken off the table by Trump. Trump has looked the other way when it comes to the Saudis taking a US-based journalist and literally hacking him to pieces. Trump gave them a complete free pass. Joe Biden would not. He would hold those responsible to account. Now, on the specific question of sanctions against MBS, I think the vice president would want to go through an intelligence-based assessment of who exactly is responsible, up to what level. Well, the and, CIA has concluded that it well, We've was seen the MBS. public reporting on that, right? We've seen the public reporting on that. But I think the vice president would want to make sure that he actually got to do the full intelligence analysis with the actual intelligence. And then he would make a determination about what the right steps would be at that time. So he's not going to prejudge or pre-commit on the specific, specific issue of sanctions vis-a-vis MBS, but he will not take off the table sanctions against whomever he deems it's appropriate to pursue sanctions against with respect to this. But and the just rest to be clear, including MBS, if the intelligence shows what the CIA has been publicly reported to have concluded, that it was MBS who gave the order, who sanctioned this murder of a journalist writing for the Washington Post. He will consider imposing sanctions on MBS personally? He has not spoken to that specific issue. He has not said one way or the other. He has not prejudged what an investigation or an analysis would be under his administration. So I'm not in a position to say yes or no to your question, other than to say he would take this very seriously and ask his intelligence community to take a very hard look at it. Jake, um, you talked about how a Biden administration would put human rights at the top of the agenda in the context of uh, Saudi relations. What about China? There are a million Uyghurs in concentration camps now uh, in China. If it's not a full-on genocide, it is a cultural genocide. What would a President Joe Biden do to deal with that issue, and how would it fit into a broader foreign policy toward China? Well, First of all, and I, I acknowledge this is a very low bar, but it is nonetheless an election. And so you have a choice between two leaders. So it bears saying he would not actively encourage Xi Jinping to go ahead and continue the construction of those concentration camps, which according to John Bolton's book, Donald Trump did when he was with Xi Jinping. So let's get over that low bar. But again, this is a choice in this election. And you know, even exceeding that puts him ahead of where the current occupant of the Oval Office is. Beyond that, the vice president not only would speak out strongly on the issue, but would take action both in terms of sanctions against Chinese officials and with respect to sanctions against American companies who supply any of the instruments or materials that would go into the repression of the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang 
and he has said that those are concrete steps that he would be prepared to take in response to this, as well as working with the rest of the international community to push back against China in multiple different forums um, for what they are doing to their own people. So how would a Biden administration be tougher on China than a Trump administration, than the Trump administration has been? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is to look at the kind of four big things that China is trying to accomplish in the world and what Donald Trump has done and what Joe Biden would do. Okay, so number one, China has a longstanding desire to divide and weaken the American alliance system. Donald Trump is doing that for them. Number two, China has a longstanding desire to weaken the American position in international institutions and strengthen its own. Donald Trump is doing that for them from the Paris Climate Agreement to the WHO, you name it. Number three, China is looking to tarnish the American model and burnish its own model, hold itself out with its authoritarian capitalist model as a perfectly good way for the rest of the world to organize itself. Well, Donald Trump has managed to take the shine off the American democratic and economic and and public health model in a pretty dramatic way and has looked the other way on human rights and values. And number four, China wants to outcompete the United States in high technology and the industries of the future, clean energy and so forth. And uh, Donald Trump has done nothing to invest in those industries. He wants to talk about things like coal. So what would Joe Biden do? The opposite. He'd reinforce our allies. He would reassert American leadership in international institutions. He would put values at the center of the relationship and invest in reinforcing the foundations of American strength. And he would outcompete China for those industries of the future and has put out an extensive plan for how we would do so. The end of that, you'd have a circumstance in which the U.S. would be stronger and be operating from a position of strength against China. Uh, The last point that I would just say on this is, if you think about the two biggest things this year between the U.S. and China, the trade deal, it's a weak deal that China's not even living up to. And COVID, Donald Trump took the Chinese Communist Party's leader's word for it on COVID rather than insisting that the CDC get access to China. So on the two big questions he whiffed, Joe Biden would not whiff. Uh, He will be tough on trade enforcement and tough on holding China accountable when it comes to global health and pandemics. I've got a question about Iran. Uh, I was looking at the fascinating piece that the vice president wrote for foreign affairs, why America must, must lead again, rescuing U.S. foreign policy after Trump. And in the Iran section, he writes... The recent killing of Qasem Soleimani, commander of Iran's Quds Force, removed a dangerous actor, but also raised the prospect of an ever-escalating cycle of violence in the region, and it has prompted Tehran to jettison the nuclear limits established under the nuclear deal. Does the vice president believe that it was a mistake for President Trump to order the killing of Qasem Soleimani? Joe Biden does not, by any means, mourn the death of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, but so he has not... it was a mistake or was the right thing to do when, the pre- when President Trump ordered his assassination? Uh, you know, taking Qasem Soleimani off the battlefield was not inherently a mistake. The way in which the Trump administration went about it without any kind of broader strategy for how to deal with the potential response was a mistake. And, and let me explain why. Because after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, what happened? Iran launched a barrage of missiles at an American military base, a kind of astonishing 
direct attack by Iran on American forces, injuring you know, uh, dozens of service members, many of whom ended up with traumatic brain injury, which Donald Trump then called headaches, and basically stood down. And since then, Iran has continued to assist proxy militias in Iraq for attacks on Americans, including taking the lives of Americans. And then there was absolutely no strategy for curbing Iran's advance on its nuclear program to the point where the International Atomic Energy Agency last month came out and said, Iran now has enough material, one weapon's worth of, of low enriched uranium, enough for one bomb. So the overall strategy was a mistake. The vice president wouldn't have said, you simply can't take action against Qasem Soleimani, who certainly has the blood of many American service members on his hands. One quick follow-up on that. In the very next sentence in that piece, he writes, Tehran must return to strict compliance with the nuclear deal. If it does so, I would rejoin, rejoin the agreement and use our renewed commitment to diplomacy to work with our allies to strengthen and extend it. What if it does not? Well, then we would be in a position because we were prepared to actually step up and engage in realistic, hard-headed diplomacy with Iran, where we could rally the world to begin to impose more pressure on Iran and to isolate them, uh, to narrow their set of choices. The challenge right now is our European allies are not with us when it comes to Iran, let alone China and Russia. So by putting forward a responsible, clear-eyed, hard-headed position, we would be significantly strengthening our hand with respect to the pressure and isolation we could be, bring to bear on Tehran. And by the way, guys, this isn't just theoretical this was the strategy the Obama administration used to get Iran to the table and to get Iran to agree to limits on its nuclear program and eyes and ears on the ground in all aspects of its nuclear program that set their program back. That program is now marching forward and Iran is closer to a nuclear weapon today than when Donald Trump took office because the Trump administration has pursued a feckless approach. Jake, uh, one more foreign policy question. This past weekend, peace talks uh, restarted in Doha between uh, the, the Afghan government and the Taliban. Two of the main architects of the uh, bin Laden operation, Adam McRaven and Mike Morrell, both said that if there is a full withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, the Taliban will take over in a matter of months. I think McRaven said to pre, you know, to where they were pre 9-11. Now I know that I, I think the Biden position is that a Biden administration would leave a small residual counterterrorism force, but why should people be confident? Tell us about what that force would look like, how many troops, how many civilians, and why should people be confident that the Taliban wouldn't be on the march again and take over that country? all the impact that that would have on women's rights, human rights, you know, all of the other things the Taliban was responsible for. Well, first, a lot of this comes down to effective and sustained diplomacy between the Afghan government and the Taliban to, to come up with a set of meaningful and enforceable commitments. That is work that they have to do in intra-Afghan negotiations. And that's something that can't just be rushed or finessed. It needs to be done in a, in a, sustained and hard-headed way. Second, the U.S. interest overall, oh, and by the way, on that score, um, the Afghan government has indicated, and the U.S. should continue to put pressure on them to follow through on them living up to the terms of the Afghan constitution, including the protection of the rights of women. 
On the issue of a U.S. counterterrorism capability, the vice president's view is that our paramount concern should be to ensure that Afghanistan never becomes a base for terrorists to plot and engage in, in the operational work to carry out attacks against the homeland. And he is confident that we can have a capability that can achieve that purpose, even as we continue to keep skin in the game in supporting the Afghans in coming up with a deal that can stick. I uh, will come back to foreign policy in a moment, but there was something in that uh, foreign affairs piece not related to foreign policy that leapt out at me when I read it. And it relates to the role of money in politics. And in that piece, and I haven't heard much discussion of this, former Vice President Biden writes that one way of addressing it starts by a fighting, by fighting for a constitutional amendment to completely eliminate private dollars from federal elections. As I read that, you're calling for taxpayer-financed elections at the federal level, presidential members of Congress. I'd like to hear more about what you have or what he has in mind there, particularly how it relate to presumably challengers uh, would have access to taxpayer financing of their campaigns as well. Have you drafted what this amendment would look like? How would you address the question of how you would apportion federal dollars for people running against incumbent members of Congress? Tell us a little bit more about what you have in mind. So the vice president has set forth the principle. It's a longstanding principle of his. This is not new to him in this campaign. He's been talking for years about the need to get private money, corporate money, fundraising out of politics and to turn to a, a public financing system. There are aspects and elements of public financing systems at every level of the U.S. government. There's even been a, a, a public financing scheme at the federal level, um, not fully displayed. Which, which is no longer operative. Right. But my, my only point is this is not something with which we have no experience, including on questions relating to challengers and how you effectively set your amounts, police it, uh, deal with issues around broadcast access and the like. And so he would draw on in actually putting text to paper, that's gonna get into a lot of questions around the legalities and how it fits with you know constitutional wording. But in the operation of the plan, he would look for the best systems in the United States that have done this at the local state levels, and that would redeem this basic principle that says no system is perfect, but a system of public financing beats by a mile a system in which the private dollars are flowing to candidates in ways that can be potentially corrupting. Hey, Jake, I think most people would agree that coming out of your convention, the Democratic Party actually you know, given the primary, was remarkably united. There has been kind of a crack in that wall recently, which, uh, which is that Bernie Sanders was fairly critical of, you know, one aspect of the Biden campaign, um, which is that he has not been, in his view, out there enough talking about uh, some economic issues, uh, minimum wage, uh, creating jobs, access to health care, and more generally, reaching out to kind of younger progressives, suggesting that he ought to be out there with uh, Biden ought to be out there campaigning with AOC, for example. Do you take that criticism to heart? What is the Biden campaign doing to address it? 
Well, first, I wouldn't describe it as a crack in the wall. I mean, he's giving tactical campaign advice. Hairline, a hairline, Frank. He's not, <laughs> he's not suggesting this divide in the Democratic Party, right? He's a guy who's run in two national elections in, in 16 and 20, and so certainly has earned the right to offer his opinion about how to meet voters where they are and reach them. And so the direct answer to your question, do we take the advice to heart? Of course, we take... I mean, look, there are seven weeks to go. The stakes could not be higher. And we are not going to close our ears to any advice from any source when it comes to uh, mobilizing voters, persuading voters and the like. And the vice president agrees that we've got to drive a hard economic message down the stretch. It's why he was in Michigan last week uh, laying out some new proposals around Buy American. And he also agrees that we need to reach out to young people, which is why as we speak, he's on his way to the podium uh, to give a speech on climate change today, uh, to speak to what's happening, the incredible and awful images we're seeing from the West Coast and the, the storms hitting the Gulf, the flooding hitting the Midwest. So the short answer is that this campaign is not going to sit around and think we have a monopoly on wisdom for what it's going to take to win. This is an all hands on deck moment. Ooh. Let me just ask you one follow-up question on the economy. Millions and millions of Americans are still out of work because of this pandemic, uh, you know, essentially an economic crash. There's still, you know, close to a million people every week applying for uh, unemployment benefits. Why do you think Biden still lags behind Donald Trump on who would handle the economy better in poll after poll by, you know, five points or more? Well, first, I mildly disagree with that. There certainly have been polls where he's down five points. I saw one yesterday. There have also been polls, like economist YouGov comes to mind, where he's tied or ahead. Well, let's just take a step back. There was a point at which he was at a massive deficit on the economy, and that has closed and in some cases been erased. And that is because of Donald Trump's catastrophic mismanagement of the pandemic. So that gap is not at all what it once was, and it is closing because we're prosecuting the case against Trump. And then I think there's another important point here, which is when you look at these polls on a question that I think voters are really going to be asking when they walk into the voting booth, which is, who's on my side? Who's going to fight for the middle class? Who's going to fight for working people? Polls over the course of the past several months have given Biden a decided advantage on that issue. And that, to me, is the economic issue and the economic case that we need to close out coming down the stretch. A lot of reporting about polling showing that Trump is doing better with Latino voters than he did against Hillary Clinton, particularly in Florida, a major battleground state, obviously. How do you account for that? Well, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not a pundit. What I will just say is that the vice president is not taking any vote for granted, any community for granted, any type of voter for granted. So he is going to work his tail off to convince Latino voters, and that is a very diverse range of communities across this country, to support him and not Trump. And, and he'll be in Florida this week meeting with Latino leaders and community members to make that case. And this is just going to be a work every day, be humble, elbow grease kind of thing. And we'll see what happens on election day. Yeah. I mean, to the you know elbow grease going into the communities, I mean, one of the things that you hear from Latino groups is that actually being there physically in these communities makes a real difference. And as we know, Joe Biden, for health reasons, largely has, has not done as much physical campaigning as uh, Donald Trump has. Is that going to change? Are we going to see Biden going into these communities more, engaging more physically? 
Yeah, you've already seen him begin to ramp up coming out of Labor Day, and that tempo will continue and increase between now and Election Day. Mm-hmm. He'll, be, he'll be out there, he'll be traveling, he'll be going to battleground states, and you know he'll be meeting people on the ground where they are from all walks of life, all political parties in you know the big cities and in smaller towns. I think you will see that over the course of the next seven weeks. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to a few uh, foreign policy questions, if that's okay. Russia. And uh, actually, before we get to that, just, you know, obviously we know what the Russians did in 2016 and reports of what they're doing this year. Have the, has the Biden campaign seen evidence that, the, that Russian hackers are seeking to penetrate any of your emails? Um, I am not aware of, I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is that Microsoft has indicated that Russian hackers, including some of the same folks who were around four years ago from the GRU, have been targeting allies. But I have not been briefed on the question of whether um, there have been direct efforts at penetration of the Biden campaign's emails themselves. In that uh, foreign affairs article I referenced before, Biden wrote, we must impose real costs on Russia for its violations of international norms and stand with Russian civil society. This was written before the poisoning of Navalny, the uh, main Russian opposition figure. But then he also writes in the very next paragraph, I will also pursue an extension of the New START Treaty, an anchor of strategic stability between the United States and Russia. What if those two goals that he articulates here are in conflict? If we impose real costs on Russia, it undermines our ability to have a new START Treaty with the Russians, which takes precedence curbing a new nuclear arms treaty or imposing real costs on Russia for its violations of international norms? Look, I know you're going to think this is a bit of a dodge, but I don't think it is. I think that that is a false choice. I believe that the United States can pursue effective sanctions policy against Russia and get the Russians to work with us on matters of arms control and negotiation. And part of the reason I believe that is because I lived it. Um, I was there negotiating on the Iran nuclear deal with the Russians as part of the P5 plus one, telling the Russian negotiators that sanctions were coming with respect to what they did in Ukraine, and then securing Russian cooperation in a series of hard asks of Iran. So we can walk and chew gum at the same time here. I think that we can take measures to respond and hold accountable through the Magnitsky Act and other steps, those who are participating in these vile acts, including against Mr. Navalny, while at the same time sitting down with Russia on matters of security like the extension of the New START Treaty. Another issue that is getting some attention is the war in Yemen. And we have a report today from the New York Times that a State Department lawyer in 2016, while the Obama-Biden administration was in office, concluded that American support for the Saudi war in Yemen, including providing precision guided bombs and other logistical support for bombing raids that killed thousands of innocent civilians, could amount to a war crime. And that senior officials in the State Department and in the administration uh, could be held liable for that. Now, I know you are one of the former Obama administration officials who signed that letter 
in 2018 saying that the Obama-Biden support for the Saudi war in Yemen was a mistake and you regret it. But I don't know that I've heard whether the vice president shares that view and whether he spoke up at the time in opposing what President Obama was doing in providing that military support for the Saudi uh, war in Yemen. So the vice president has said that he would end support for the Saudi war in Yemen. He would end it right. and he would not. And, and by the way, going back to your question about Jamal Khashoggi, there's been so many debates over the course of the cycle that I'd momentarily forgotten. He spoke to the issue of Khashoggi and said, one of the things that would be on the table would be a suspension of arms sales to the Saudis writ large. Uh, but certainly you would not be supplying them with any weapons or any military or logistical support for the war in Yemen. That's point number one. Point number two is I was not actually in the administration in 2016 and therefore don't know exactly what the nature of the internal deliberations were, nor have I had the opportunity to look at detail, in detail at the report you laid out. Point number three is the basic proposition that U.S. support for Saudi Arabia was going to be helpful to the cause of stability and peace in the region did not bear out, period. And therefore, it would be a good thing for the vice president to win this election and be able to implement an outcome that has the United States ceased any hand in the continued prosecution of that war. So he will cut off arms, all arms sales to the Saudis? Uh, what, what he said in the debate is that that would be on the table as, as part of the response to what happened with Jamal Khashoggi. I got to say, Jake, I do hear a lot of waffling here. Like, maybe we'll consider it, but I can't promise that's what we're going to do. Well, you can call it waffling. I think what I would say is the vice president has been absolutely crystal clear in his position that there has to be more accountability for Khashoggi than there is. But I certainly am not going to sit on this podcast and close off his options for how he's going to carry that out, whether it's with respect to arms sales or it's with respect to sanctions. But you can, you know, I'll come back on here any year if we win this election. And I think I will be able to look you guys in the eye over Zoom <laughs> and be able to say, yes, we did follow through on holding them accountable. Wait, so but a year from now, today, we're, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's hard for me. Yeah. to speak on his behalf when he and I haven't sat down to have a long conversation about what the exact nature of this is. And, you know, you guys can, can appreciate that. This is not so, an attempt. Be, uh, so just very quickly, so a year from now, we're going to still be doing everything over Zoom? I was going to say, I hope not. <laughs> well, maybe this podcast, I don't know. All right. I, I got a couple more quick questions. Jake, you, um, you were talking about debates. We're two weeks away from uh, the first uh, presidential debate. Uh, first of all, I don't know. Has the commission announced? Uh, is, are these? Are you expecting these will be not on Zoom, but physical debates? Both They'll candidates be will be there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, I know, have been in, uh, deeply involved in debate prep in the past. I'm sure you will be this time around as well. What do you think Donald Trump's strengths and weaknesses are as a debater, and what will you be advising Joe Biden going into that first debate? Well, I would say Donald Trump's strength and weakness is, is basically that he has no shame and no real relationship with the truth. So that's a strength because he doesn't get phased by anything. He just will keep powering on through. It's a weakness because over the course of 90 minutes, his just complete lack of credibility ends up shining through. And I feel that that's what happened to him in 2016. 
and I expect uh, to see some something similar in 2020. The other thing that I would just say in this regard is that the Trump campaign has spent a lot of time lowering expectations on Joe Biden by saying he's not going to be able to show up and, and be effective in these debates. And, and I would just say Donald Trump, to the extent he's spinning that story in his own brain, is going to be in for a rude awakening because Joe Biden is going to come to that debate. Don't you want to keep lowering those expectations? <laughs> look, look. My, my view on this is to just reject out of hand this, the absurd notions that the Trump campaign is putting forward and to say the Joe Biden they're going to see on stage is not even in the same sport, let, let alone the same ballpark of the Joe Biden they've conjured up in their minds. Yeah. Okay, I got a softball political question. That you, you are a policy guy, but I wanna ask you a question about voters. There's, a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about um, the hidden uh, Trump voters, uh, the ones who may not admit to pollsters that they're gonna vote for Donald Trump because of the social stigma uh, that may be attached to that. We're actually seeing a little bit of evidence in our polling of, of shy Biden voters. That is to say, people who uh, live in areas that are supportive of, of Trump, their neighbors may be Trump voters, and they don't want to admit to them that they're going to vote for Joe Biden. I'm just wondering, I don't know that you look at the numbers, but have you seen anything like that? Do you think that's a real thing, the shy Biden voter? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I'm sorry. Right. In this case, I'm the humble policy guy. All right. We'll get, <laughs> I can't we'll make get, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get Ron Klain on. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we'll get one of the, one of the Pauls. Right. Mike, anything I else? Mean, for, yeah. I mean, it sounds, it's, I'm certainly hoping that's the case. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. One, one last one. We have not mentioned the law and order issue, which flared up this weekend with that horrific shooting in Compton of um, the two um, law enforcement officers. Now, I know that Vice President Biden was quite forceful in denouncing what happened in Compton, but the question remains as to whether he needs to speak more forcefully about more broadly the lawlessness, the looting, and the spike in violence, the very real spike in violence in major American urban areas, uh, which we've seen across the board. Does he plan to do that? Well, plan to do that. He did it. Uh, he went and gave a major he did it speech. in the case of Compton, exactly. yes. Right. No, no, no. no. I, I'm saying right. even beyond his very forceful statement on the horrific uh, assassination of those two police officers, he gave- but They haven't uh, died yet, so it's not an assassination. But uh, sorry. Shooting. Okay, yes. The, right. Right. He gave an entire speech in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania- Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, 10 days ago, covering this topic from top to bottom. And the only candidate in this race who actually hasn't given a full statement on condemning violence from wherever it comes is Donald Trump, who refuses to call out the right-wing violence, Kyle Rittenhouse killing those folks, the armed convoys dr uh, driving through the streets of Portland. Donald Trump has refused to say anything negative about that because he's scared to do so. Uh, Joe Biden has said, whether it's from the left or the right, I condemn it all. I asked Donald Trump to do the same, and Trump has been unable to do so. so. So Biden has spoken to this. He will obviously continue to speak to it, um, but he's not going to buy into this nonsense frame that, that Donald Trump is making America safer or is the president of law and order when you know he's got 
six of his close advisors indicted or in jail. And he is the king and agent of chaos in this country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're prepared to have this debate through the fall. I'm sure it will come up in those three presidential debates and, and Joe Biden will be uh, prepared to deal with it. This is the question that maybe the only question that our listeners really want to know the answer to. We assume that you think that Joe Biden is going to win the election. Do you think it's going to be an exceedingly close election or do you think there's a reasonable chance that Joe Biden will win by a significant margin? So I am Irish and Yates said of Irish people that they have uh, an abiding sense of tragedy that sustains them through temporary periods of joy. And so I am, you know, and I'm also superstitious, so I'm not going to make any predictions other than to say we feel very good about where we are right now, but we're taking nothing for granted and we're going to run through the tape. Otherwise, you're Irish and you're a Democrat, so you obviously have to be, <laughs> have to be wringing your hands. And, and you all worked the time. for Hillary Clinton in 2016, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. all those reasons. But um, Jake Sullivan, uh, we are definitely going to take you up on your offer to come back on Skullduggery uh, once Joe Bi- after Joe Biden is in office for a year. You haven't mentioned what position you expect to be in when that happens, but um, whatever it is, the offer. Happy, uh, we, Happy we, is the position I'm going to be in. <laughs> okay. The plan is we will take you up on that. And thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you, guys.